The summer months are here with evening outdoor parties and hopefully some leisurely slow weekends, perhaps with a glass of chilled Chardonnay or a beautiful glass of Merlot. Whatever your preference is, do you know what's in your glass exactly? We're expanding the notion of know your farmer or know where your food comes from to know how your food is being made in this episode organic and non-organic wine, a comparison from land to bottle. That's our topic here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. Most of us who are following an organic diet as much as possible know the differences between organic and non-organic produce. The use of pesticides and synthetic fertilizers in so-called conventional production systems and many other issues that organic production addresses when it comes to fruits and vegetables. But what about processed foods, in this case wine? What does it take to make a bottle of organic wine and what goes into non-organic wine? Well, we'll learn about it today. Organic and non-organic wine production, a comparison from land to bottle. All that and more coming up in just a minute here today on An Organic Conversation. I'm your host, Helge Helberg, and this show is brought to you by Bowman College, a leader in the field of holistic nutrition and culinary arts. Become a nutrition consultant or a natural chef at one of their campuses or learn from home in a self-paced mentored distance learning program. For more information on a degree in holistic nutrition or culinary arts, bowmancollege.org. And thank you also to Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com.
And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Organic and non-organic wine, a comparison from land to bottle. That's our topic in this hour. And I'm now speaking with Jonathan and Katrina Fry, the owner of Fry Vineyards. Katrina here in the studio with me and Jonathan on the phone at the farm. Do I have you both? I mean, I know I have you, Katrina. <laughs> yes, we're, I'm happy to be here, Helga. And Jonathan, can you hear as yeah, well? Yeah, wonderful. Yes, I can. Likewise. Thank you for making time. I don't know exactly what's going on in June at an organic vineyard, but we're dedicating this hour for both of you to walk us step by step through the steps of production of what it takes. What are the key differences between organic and non-organic wine? I was saying in my intro, Jonathan, that in produce, people have a fairly rough or very detailed lay of the land of what goes into vegetable production produce, fruits and vegetables, in regard to pesticides and synthetic fertilizers, the, the main differences between organic and non-organic production are public knowledge at this point, not so when it comes to processed food, and perhaps even less so when it comes to wine. So again, thanks for making the time and giving us your expertise. Let's start with perhaps the most important part, the foundation really, the land. What is required for organic wine production? And What are the, the steps to get there? And what is required, if there's anything required, for non-organic wine production? Jonathan, do you want to start with that? Sure. Um, you had mentioned produce, and growing grapes is quite similar to growing other kinds of produce, such as other fruit trees and vines and so on. So the land, of course, is pretty similar. The basic tenet of farming organically is to um, add carbon to the soil or making sure that you have plenty of carbon in the soil so you have an adequate organic matter content. This has many benefits for the soil. It very much increases the water-holding capacity of the soil. The soil can act more like a sponge. It can soak up water, especially if you have heavy rain, and then hold it, and then also keep it there in case it gets dry. So that's probably one of the primary benefits. The carbon also acts as a basis for soil life, soil health, The term soil health is very popular nowadays, and the people are starting to appreciate that the soil is not just dirt, but a very complicated ecosystem and web of all kinds of living organisms. So probably the primary difference in the two systems of farming would be that the farming organically tries to create a healthy living soil, the concept being that you then get healthy plants, which have better um, better immune systems and um Therefore, don't need uh, as much pest control. What does the non-organic vineyard look like? Well, they would start with soil, but perhaps not have such an emphasis on the soil carbon, the soil, soil organic matter, and soil health, and all the things that that go with that. If you're farming organically, the emphasis is on adding fertilizer in the form of compost, um, which is a very complicated substance. There's probably no more complicated substance in all of science than compost, where the living things that are happening are almost mind-boggling. You have kingdoms of uh, soil organisms, funguses, and bacteria rising and falling in incredibly dynamic uh, interplay and in things that are happening. So people start to understand what happens in the soil. It is absolutely mind-boggling. And if you're not farming organically, you probably don't pay quite as much attention to that and give the plant more simple mixes of nutrients, 
fertilizers back to the NPK um, sort of basic. Yeah, and those, those would often be from synthetic sources rather right. than natural sources. And then, of course, the other huge difference is um, weed control. And I'm sure that most of the listeners now are aware of um, how heavily Roundup is used in American agriculture. And that's very much the preferred herbicide for grapes, conventionally grown grapes. Oh, really? So the strips of Roundup remove the weeds in between the rows of the grapes. With an organic farm, you would use mechanical means to... Like what, flaming or something? Well, or just um, mowing, 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 mm-hmm. and then there's also their various tractor implements that dart between the vines and can remove the weeds in between the vines. So that's a cultural practice that um, very much separates organic from non-organic. And sadly, now um, lab analysis are showing that Roundup, the active ingredient in Roundup glyphosate, can actually accumulate in the tissue of perennial plants and vines. So it's it is showing up in apple juice, wine, all sorts of food sources. When we talk about weed control, as a lay person's question, we are getting rid of wheat because they are competing for nutrients, right? You want to give the nutrients of the soil or whatever you are adding in terms of uh, fertilizers, synthetic or natural fertilizers, compost, um, you want to give that to the wine grapes or to the wine stock, the rootstock, not to the weeds. Is that the is that the reason why we get rid of that, weeds? That's right. And in our California Mediterranean climate, they're also competing for the water as the summer goes on. Great. Um, when it comes to certifying that land, Jonathan, back to you. What what is what's required for a, a non-organic vineyard? Are there any certification or production standards that they have to oblige to? For example, maximum allowed slope to avoid eroded hillsides, or any limitations? Or can anyone who has land, as long as it's zoned for agriculture, grow any kind of grape on any kind of slope or environmental condition? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure about slope. Um, there are certain areas that have regulations dealing with slope and runoff and, and erosion issues, of course. But aside from that, certainly if the soil is suitable and will grow grapes, it can be done just about anywhere. And then there's no follow-up, right? The agricultural commissioner or whoever oversees non-organic production, I don't even know if it's over. Is that overseen? Like, Is there some form well, of inspection of how you are doing it as a non-organic well, vineyard? there are pesticide use reports. So anytime a farmer applies a pesticide, they are required, and this is administered by whatever county they're in, they're required to report exactly what they put on the land. And that is public knowledge. So a consumer can go to their county and look at the pesticide use reports of individual farms. And you, as an organic vineyard, you have to go through organic certification in order to upkeep your organic label, and that is an annual inspection, right? In your case, it's for the land and all the processing, but what do they check for in the land? What does that look like if an inspector comes to your farm or ranch once a year, and they check for what? What are they looking at? Well, I used to be a farm inspector for CCOF, the California Certified Organic Farmers, so I have a little bit of knowledge about that. That was back in the 80s and early 90s, and now it's a pretty big business is these um, annual farm inspections. Um, What they'll do, they come out to the farm, look at the actual fields, 
And then quite a bit of it is a paper trail. So going through what the farmer has used in their fields, if um, anything, and then um, documenting, looking at the documentation of how the farmer farms. And also going further, if they have a processing facility, they will also look at how it's processed. And then if they are storing any substances on the farm, they will want to see where they're being stored and how they're being stored um, and so on and so forth. So it's just a annual process of verification that the farmer is operating within the guidelines of the National Organic Program. But could I add that part of the inspection is also to demonstrate your soil improvement plan. So each farm, each organic farm has to come up with an initial plan of how they're going to improve the quality of the soil on their farm each year. So, Jonathan, you you as an inspector, how would you know that? I mean, is there a lab test required every time you take a soil sample and you send it in, or your training has allowed you, based on last year's records, to see if there's an increase in soil life or in soil carbon? Like, How, how do you do that, actually? I don't think that there's actually soil uh, lab tests that are needed for the inspections, but they certainly help. And uh, soil testing, even though it has its drawbacks as far as the test being accurate and differing from lab to lab and so on, still is an extremely useful tool in um, in, in assessing soil health. And uh, so that certainly helps. Uh, the, the inspector will certainly ask to see if they have any soil tests available. And, of course, there's good old-fashioned look and feel. You can look at the soil and get a sense for if it's being improved and what its total organic matter might be. Also, the health of the crop, which is being grown, it's possible to check that out. There's tests that can be done on the crop tissues, like the uh, BRICS test, which looks at the sugar levels in the plants, which is a sort of a rough you know, indicator of plant health, and other tests, verification that the farmer is staying within the guidelines of the National Organic Program. And your training, of course, just for people who have never participated and who has really at, at an organic Uh, inspection. This is not a farmer going online and filling out a 20-minute online form. You actually are visiting the farm. You're talking with the farmer for several hours or a day or two days. You're walking the fields. You're looking at the leaves and the soil and the health of the overall operation. And it's a true inspection, right? You're really spending time there making sure it is all followed and there's there's no commingling or any funny business going on. Yeah, correct. Um, It does does require an uh, actual visit to the uh, farm. Well, I would just like to add that when people see the USDA symbol on their produce or on their wine, that that they can really count on that. That does mean something. It's a vigorous inspection and standards are upheld. At the same time, you know, there's always a movement by big ag or even big organic ag to possibly diminish the organic standards. That hasn't happened yet, but, you know, it it requires eternal consumer vigilance to make sure that the USDA message and standards stay strong, and it it is strong. Yes, especially under uh, changing 
uh, governance <laughs> on right. a federal level. It's a federal law, um, meaning that everything that bears the organic, the USDA organic seal, even if it's grown in Mexico, meets the U.S. production standards for organic so that you can be sure if you buy organic wherever it may be grown in the world it meets those U.S. production standards. And that means sometimes that U.S. inspectors fly to those countries or have agreements with local organic certification agencies in those countries to uphold the USDA National Organic Program regulation. So it is a pretty big deal. And yes, we want to make sure it stays that way. You're listening to an organic conversation, organic and non-organic wine, a comparison from land to bottle is our topic in this hour. I'm Helge Helberg and I'm Graced here with Katrina Fry in the studio and Jonathan Fry on the phone, the owners of Fry Vineyards, the oldest certified organic vineyard in the country. Uh, Fry Wine, F R E Y, frywine.com, the website. If you can hang on for just a minute, Jonathan, and you here in the sure. studio, Katrina, we want to go into the rootstock and then into the bottling and the production of actually the wine, the fermentation, all that. Right after the break, we want to honor our underwriters, but we'll be back with so much more in just a second. This is an organic conversation, and this show is brought to you by Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. That's equalexchange.coop. And by Adderley, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. That's U-T-T-E-R-L-Y dot C-O. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Organic and non-organic wine, a comparison from land to bottle. Our focus in this hour and who better to have here in the studio or on the phone, the Fries, Katrina Fry here with me and Jonathan Fry calling from the farm to talk about the differences really from land to bottle. We covered the land 
at least to some degree, and organic certification. I want to dive back into right there, rootstock, the plant itself. Do you have to plant organic rootstock or do you need to wait if you buy non-organic rootstock for a few years until you can harvest your first organic harvest? How does that work, Jonathan? Well, yeah, but I should give a little background on the subject of rootstock. Even though the grapes that are commonly used in wine are native to Europe and Asia, North America is really the true home of the grape, you could say. It has hundreds of species of wild grapevines, whereas in Europe and Asia there's about a dozen. And so what happened was uh, there was a pest that was uh, native to North America that caused a lot of trouble in vineyards that were planted on grapevines from Europe. This was about 100 years ago. And so since then, just about all the vineyards in both the New World and the Old World have been planted on Native American rootstock, even though the scion wood, the top part of the plant, might be from Europe. The name of the pest is phylloxera. I think maybe a lot of people have heard about that. What does it do? What it... It's a it's a little louse, and huh. it lives on the roots of the plant and sucks the sap out of the plant and makes it lose a lot of its vigor. Mm-hmm. And um, so it can be a big problem. It wiped out a huge fraction of the vineyards of Europe back in the 1870s. And so now, for that reason, just about all vineyards are planted on some kind of Native American rootstock, which is what we do here pretty much. We do have a couple of fields that are on their own roots, and so that question wouldn't apply. And there's certain other grape-growing areas around the world that plant grapes on their own roots as well, where this pest hasn't shown up yet. But as far as buying certified organic rootstock, you can either grow your own. You can take rootstock cuttings and propagate them on your own, but much more commonly is to buy the rootstock from grapevine nurseries. The grapes don't bear fruit up until they're about three years old. You would hope that uh, putting these non-organic rootstocks into a healthy organic soil would make them jump with joy and um, uh, keep on growing. And you so, have to wait at that time anyway, right? right? You have to anything that's non-organic that you put in the soil has to wait three years before you can call it organic. Is that the same yeah. for rootstock? Yeah, it's kind of once in a lifetime thing with the grapevine. The grapevine has a life expectancy. Well, it could live to be over a hundred years old or more. But um, it's just the very first part of putting the grapevine in the ground. You plant the rootstock and then graft or bud the um, scion wood to it. So rootstock-wise, it is the same for organic and non-organic vineyards. If organic rootstock is not available, both vineyard types would plant roughly the same kind of plant, depending on the variety, of course. But it's, oh, the, sure. it's the same. And then the, the love and care that goes into it on an organic level, um, really within the ecology of the vineyard, defines then the organic production under, under certified organic law, right? Correct. What does that look like when you go through the season and to the harvest? What are the main differences between how you have to manage your vineyard compared to a non-organic vineyard? Most of the difference in the cultural practices has to do with the fertilizers used, let's say, and then also weed control that was mentioned earlier. Yes. Uh, those are kind of the two main differences. The other differences, such as pruning, you know, various kinds of pruning, thinning, and so on, um, would be just about the same. If you're putting on pesticides or mildicides and whatnot, um, those would be quite quite different. You know, um, I mean, we we live in an area where by 
good grace. Our vineyards are surrounded by forest lands, so we have a lot of biodiversity in our lands. And in all these years of farming, we started our winery in 1980. We've never had a major pest problem. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that nearby are blackberries that are home to parasitic wasps that control many of the common grape pests. And some organic vineyards take care to intersperse insectaries. So that would be a couple of rows taken out of the vineyard to plant with beneficial plants, again, to encourage biodiversity. So ideally, you don't invite in any form or shape uh, pests to begin with. And if you had them, how would you deal with them? I heard, you know, rubbing oil on the leaves sometimes to get rid of something, or it's all, basically, it's all hand labor, um, or washing off the pest, really, uh, rootstock by rootstock, basically. Is that is that how, how organic vineyards manage if a pest occurs? Well, there are some approved materials. Na natural yeah. materials that you can use for pesticides. In Mendocino County, with our hot Mediterranean climate, it's also not as much of a problem as in perhaps other parts of the world because we don't have as high insect populations during the summer. Yes. We have a hot, dry summer, so uh, that keeps down mold, which can also be a problem. There's an interesting new treatment, which is being practiced in Germany right now. They're actually kind of testing it out, and that's blowing hot air through the vine canopy. If you give it a blast of hot air, it gets rid of uh, pests in just about all sorts and also helps strengthen the grapevine as well. That seems so non-German to blow hot air. We, we are not known to blow hot air, but that's great. <laughs> <laughs> and what would a non-organic vineyard, do you have experience in that, or do you know what would, what would be used um, to combat pests in a non-organic vineyard commonly? So I know that a lot of the pesticide and herbicide uh, formulas are constantly changing. Um, of course, as time goes on, many of them, Uh, might seem not as bad as the previous generation, but then they turn out to have a lot of problems. Um, that's kind of happening right now with some of the common herbicides. And uh, so, of course, many popular pesticides in the past have now are not being used now, so it's always changing. The typical insect pest will be mildew in the case of grapes, and then often small insects like leafhoppers and stuff like that. Uh, uh, you know, mealybug is a Another one as well, but again, going back to having good, healthy soil, that goes a long ways in sure. up the plants. Yeah, the plant I, immune system. Yep. I, I remember maybe 20 years ago at this point, or 15 years ago, we had this uh, the glassy wing sharpshooter issue, you know, affecting many grapes, but also and specifically Chardonnay on, on eroded hillsides, like weaker plants, as you said, not sitting in really robust, healthy soil or within really robust, healthy um, overall environments. And Katrina, you mentioned glyphosate or Roundup used for weed control. There was aerial spraying of vineyards going on in many counties to combat that pest. So Of course, as with us, prevention is better than, than disease control in human life. It sounds like it's exactly the same for, for a vineyard. Yeah. yeah, there's some interesting stuff out there. With uh, when If you have a plant with a, with a healthy immune system, it can be uh, nibbled on by pests, but that will, the plant will then start making substances which keep away subsequent pests of the same type. So there's very interesting, complicated uh, kinds of 
kinds of dynamics happening there between pests and plants that's been going on for forever and ever. Another strategy in organic farming is to not monocrop, so mm-hmm. you don't have fields as far as the eye can see of just one crop to allow a condition to quickly spread. So again, breaking up your vineyards with windrows and insectaries and some fruit trees, some whatever. fruit trees, yeah. having more of a diverse farmscape. Amazing. Uh, we are speaking about the differences of organic and non-organic wine production, a comparison from land to bottle here on an organic conversation Today, I'm Helge Helberg, and I'm speaking with Katrina Fry here in the studio with me and Jonathan Fry, calling from Fry Vineyards. That's Fry Wine, F-R-E-Y, frywine.com, the oldest continuously certified organic vineyard in the country. Harvest time, when you take in the grapes, and I know you had a couple of amazing bumper years, right? Beautiful crop coming in. Walk us through that, Jonathan. What's the main difference in in how you harvest the grapes and what you do with them compared to to a non-organic vineyard? Uh, There's very little, actually. Um, Of course, harvesting just means taking the grapes off the the vine. Back in the day, it would be picked by by hand. People with little grape hooks would go out and cut off all the individual clusters. Although now they have uh, grape harvesters with shaking bars on them, which shake the grape vine so the grapes fall off which uh, actually has a very clean um, product. And that's the same as you pick other grapes, too. So I think with harvest, there'd probably be the least amount of difference between the two methods of farming. Are you using hand labor still, or are you using the mechanical We only use uh, hand picking on a small fraction of what we grow. Maybe, um, let me figure it out here, about 5% or less. Depending on where the machinery can't go. Mm -hmm. And whether the vineyard was originally laid out to allow for mechanical Uh harvest. You know, a a huge problem this year in California agriculture is labor with the tough crackdown on our border. Yeah, immigrants. It's just going to become, you know, it's, in my opinion, you know, very ironic that people think that California agriculture can be handled without our historic workers so and not just california really throughout the country right it's happening throughout the country yeah after harvest you have the grapes now what's the first step you press them you crush them it depends on the wine style if you're making white wine you'll press them right after harvest and then and that's a big difference because a conventional winery would then add sulfites at that moment let's talk about that what what is the deal with sulfites I, i mean it's we know it's a preservative or it's it stops the fermentation, but how how does that work? When when are sulfides added and why? Jonathan, do you want to take that? Oh, sure. Um, yes, they're a very useful winemaking tool, if you will. Um, they stop browning of the wine from air contact. If you take an apple, for example, and slice it, it turns brown right in front of your eyes. Yes. And Or you can leave a bottle of wine open for several days. It'll start turning brown. It'll lose its fruitiness and have a stale character. So adding sulfite kind of freeze frames it. It stops the oxidative process from happening. It also has quite a few drawbacks. It will the natural um, maturation of a wine it takes pr- place at the proper speed. It has to have oxygen. So it's getting a very slow controlled you know oxidation necessary for the proper aging. 
versus having a huge amount of oxygen at once. So adding sulfites will kind of freeze that, that whole process, which is why they're used. They first became into wide use over 100 years ago in the wine industry for shipping wines to keep them looking and tasting fresher. That's the purpose of them. There are health consequences, right? I mean, sulfites, synthetic sulfites added. Katrina, what, what yeah, is well, the concern many, with that? Many people are sensitive to sulfites. They're not a known carcinogenic, but they are a synthetic substance that's added to the wine, and they can give people symptoms ranging from migraines to headaches to um, runny noses to upset um, stomachs. Upset stomachs. Yeah. So we have chosen to make our wines without sulfites, and we spent probably about the first 10 years of making wine, Figuring understanding wine chemistry uh-huh. and how to do it without sulfites. It's something that our wine consumers really, really appreciate about Fry Vineyards. So it's, it's, it obviously can be done. You guys figured it out, but it took you 10 years to figure it out. It's basically paying attention and learning about what wine will do under what circumstances that with sulfites you don't need to pay attention to. But it's really the intimacy that you have with your wine to know right how it behaves versus it's done, I'm adding sulfites, and I know guaranteed what it will be at the end. Yeah, there's a testing you can do to figure out uh, what each wine needs, so to speak. And then uh, we also don't use other adjuncts. We were uh, trying to make a product that was additive-free, and uh, we also felt that it made a better product as well. So we also don't use other adjuncts that are used in winemaking, such as added acids and uh, other things that are added. There's quite a list of things that can be added to wines. Why would they be added? Just to change the flavor or to... Yeah, to uh, craft a product that meets a certain flavor profile. Mm-hmm. In in general, perhaps the larger the winery, the more they Standard. use the additives yeah. to try to make what I call cookie-cutter wines. <laughs> right, right. But um, people are shocked to learn that there can be up to 80 different additives in your wine. And the reason that we don't know that is that alcohol is the one category of food or body care that doesn't bear an ingredient panel. So why um, is that? Wine, who, who? Well, it's a, a very powerful lobby, um, lobby the uh, alcohol industry lobby. But it's a food. I mean, alcohol it, is, it a is a food, and food, we should and absolutely it's, know. It's a huge exception to the rule. So in a way, you could say that wine has received an undeserved reputation as a natural beverage all these years, but actually it's not. So 80 different components can be added. What what would those be? Well, they're everything from color enhancers to um, really? flavors, st- stabilizers to um, acids. acids. So organic wine is, in, in a way, no, not much Enzymes. different than food, right? We have, I mean, in food, we have thousands of ingredients from colorings, um, of course, preservatives, all that, flavor enhancers that are legally allowed, have never been tested in combination with wine, at least there are 80, and we have no idea. It says on the on the bottle, um, you know, wine, vineyard. I mean, that's, that's yeah, it, grapes. There, there, <laughs> there is a law that says you have to say contains sulfites, but that's the only one of these many possibilities that shows up on the label. The wow. other thing that we're doing differently is that the yeast that we use to begin the fermentation is certified organic yeast. And our winemaker, Jonathan's brother, Paul Fry, 
about 10 years ago, challenged a major yeast company to develop a yeast that could be certified organic. So we've been using that now for about eight years, and that's actually entered the National Organic program as a requirement. Wow, congratulations. Because yeast is made on sugar beets mostly, and sugar beets were genetically engineered. That's right. right. It's the matrix that it's grown upon. Is that by choice, or do all organic vineyards have to use non-GMO? Because GMOs, genetically engineering, is not allowed in organic production. So is that a requirement for all organic vineyards? For organic wineries, they're supposed to look to see if the kind of yeast is available that they want. But there are more and more varieties coming out. We actually toured a, a champagne processing plant the other day and they use certified organic yeast even though they're working with customers who don't require it. I remember a question for sulfites. People often then argue if they if you say well I don't really like sulfites that they say well any wine has naturally occurring sulfites. Very different than the synthetic version right? Do you have a sentence on that. What's the difference between naturally occurring sulfites versus synthetic well, ones? Well, the naturally occurring sulfites in a wine are chemically bound, so they're not free to react in your body. So, for example, many foods that we commonly eat have a fairly high concentration of naturally occurring sulfites, like an egg has six parts per million and broccoli has 12 parts per million, but people don't experience the negative reactions to those because they are chemically bound. Great. We're almost in the bottle and we're almost out of time, but I do want to ask before we put the cork in it, and maybe the cork is different too, what do you do to then make the wine or bottle the wine and put the cork in? What are the differences between organic and non-organic? Well, it probably has to do again with the uh, with adding certain substances, especially sulfites, right before bottling is very commonly done in the mainstream wine industry. If you're doing a additive-free wine, of course, you wouldn't do that. And the sulfites at that stage are there to disinfect the the bottle or the wine, right, as it is bottled. And you not using that, what's the alternative? How do you you do it? Well, you'll often uh, put in a, a you know inert gas, um, nitrogen gas, which of course makes up four fifths of the air that we breathe. And so you buy the um, nitrogen and flush the bottles with that to get the remnants of oxygen out of there from any atmospheric oxygen. And that's done with all um, styles of, of uh, wine. So um, try to bottle into an oxygen-free mm-hmm. Environment. atmosphere as much as possible. Yeah. But having a sophisticated modern bottling line has been very important for the quality of our wines. Meaning yeah. extra clean equipment mm-hmm. and all that, right? Yeah. I mean, that's and that's the moment where contamination could occur. It's controlled. Yeah. Right. Amazing. <laughs> and you do that every year. All of it. We're um <laughs> we're in the middle we're in the middle of flowering right now. And strangely enough, we may have as much as an inch of rain at the end of the week. So um, we're sort of keeping our fingers crossed that that's not going to interfere with the grape flowering too much. How would that, like, if it's hard rain, it would kick off the flower and you want soft rain? It could rain. cause right? shattering where some of the blossoms fall off. Yeah, it's the uh, grapevines that are doing most or quite a bit of the work. They're out here in the field uh, <laughs> every day and uh, putting out fruit. So how do you deal with that, knowing there's rain coming, not knowing how hard it will be? We need a giant umbrella. Yeah, so you don't have that. So what? Right. What if what if you get shattering? 
It's the life of a farmer. (laughs) And you might have a slightly earlier harvest due to a smaller crop, or there's any number of things can can happen. But those are the risks of farming. There's always something different every, every season. Well, thank you both for your love and care and stewardship for creating that yeast awareness and creating a non-GMO yeast because I don't think any consumer really in detail knows that non-GMO yeast wasn't available before 10 years ago or even required because it simply wasn't, wasn't, you couldn't buy it. It wasn't in the marketplace. So we're working to at least keep the organic standards as they are and even improve them as we've learned today and that's still happening and possible and uh, all the love and care that goes into the land and the plant and the final product thank you for your time i wish you luck with that rain thank you (laughs) hopefully no shattering and um, yeah i can't wait to be out there again soon thanks so much jonathan for your time you bet. Bye now. <laughs> Talk soon. Thank Bye. you, Helga. Yeah, wonderful. Thanks for coming in, Katrina. Beautiful to have you. I'll have you back soon. Organic and non-organic wine, a comparison from land to bottle. Again, the website, frywine.com, F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E, frywine.com. Katrina and Jonathan Fry of Fry Vineyards. And yes, wine production is not unlike, at least grape growing, is not unlike produce, or it is just a produce item just quote-unquote, of course. That was our topic in this hour, and we're staying with organic produce. Here's the update from the produce market, the produce dock in San Francisco, what to buy, how to look for it, how to store it. Here is what's in season. And with me now is not Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic, but one of his super knowledgeable buyers, and that's Anthony. Anthony, do we have you? Yeah, I'm here. Great to be here. (laughs) Thank you for being back. You are dealing with a very interesting segment when you buy, including uh, really small farms. I went to my health food store last week, and I saw these snap peas, I believe, or English peas. I think it's snap peas, sugar snaps. And they all had like a little scuff, like a white little scuff. And I I didn't really know what that was. I tried one, delicious, very juicy, ripe, perfect flavor. But can you shed light? And and I think we have talked about that particular farm before. Yeah, absolutely. So um, coming out of the the Elwood Canyon farm, a That's couple right. of yes. really interesting, uh, great young farmers, um, you know, just kind of getting more and more involved in, in the organic farming world down there in Goleta outside of Santa Barbara. Something that, that you mentioned there, Helga, something that they uh, have kind of found a, a niche, something that they've grown really well, are the sugar snap peas. The soil down there is a, is a little bit magical in a sense where, um, you know, it, really close to the coast, really close to the ocean, you know, just a, just a couple miles um, inland. Mm, in, nice. in Goleta, mm-hmm. and that provides a an outstanding kind of minerality to the soil and also kind of salinity, two words that don't really come to mind often when you think of organic vegetables, but, yes. you know, that it, it kind of provides a, a really great flavor to a lot of items, and, you know, the tomatoes, which they do so well, we're, we'll get into that uh, a little bit later, and then also the sugar snap peas. Yeah, and you're you're right. I mean, what you know, the 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 quality of our produce and our diet defines 
kind of our uh, our health and the the health of the soil and all the minerals that are present or not present defines the the health and the flavor of the produce that is being grown in it right so special soils with special mineral content make for for special vegetables <laughs> yeah so, and that's um you know the that that area or that that farm in particular was really made famous by the flavor of tomatoes that they've grown and they've kind of expanded that since they've been there nice. further into the snap peas. There is a little bit, like you mentioned. Yeah, what's the wide scuff? Uh, is so that it, wind, know, it, wind it could, damage or a pest? Yeah, it could be a combination of wind damage. In addition to that, there is a, a pest, a tiny, tiny insect that affects the the fruit on the snap peas, which would be thrip. Uh-huh. And that, you know, that would cause some white scuffing. Yeah, it looked like wind damage only. I mean, there was no, it was just perfect flavor-wise, and yeah. um, it, you, you could just eat it even with that skin. But it looked like it was, you know, it shaved off the the steak or something a little bit, um, or with yeah. you know, one pea rubbing against the other, just really light. And, and a really good deal, actually. The store acknowledged that and, and made it an offer item, but delicious in flavor and everything else. So... It didn't, yeah, the, the, the quality was perfect. Outstanding. It um it nearly you know sells itself on that item because there there is some cosmetic damage. But as soon as people taste them, you know they they just can't wait to get more. So it, it's it's been a really outstanding item. Nice, and you you are bringing up you know Elwood Canyon young farmers going into the the business of being a farmer again, starting an organic farm. Uh, it, it's kind of a representative of a movement. Uh, hopefully more young people find that love of the land and go into it as we are faced with with the retirement of, I think, half of the agricultural base. A million farmers will retire within the next 10 years in the U.S. So we need those young farmers. How is that farm going? What, what are they facing? You know, it's going really well. They are still uh, learning the land quite a bit, you know, mm-hmm. what, what they can grow and what, what works well and what doesn't and also really farming the seasons and farming with the climate. How many years have uh, they been doing it on that land? They've been there now on this bigger plot of land that they moved into for about three years. And they're so, still uh, learning they're every day, right? Which is something organic yeah. farmers say even after 20 years that they say, I'm still learning every season. Absolutely. No, there's there's so much, uh, the, the intricacies of, of the layout and the soil mm-hmm. and, um, you know, different places on the farm that, do not frost, you know, the places that will get colder through the winter and places that stay pretty pretty mild. Wow. Another, Amazing. you know, huge thing coming out of the the rainiest winter that oh, yeah. we you know, most of California has really had on record. He's been down in this area of Goleta for about uh, 10 years now farming. So he has about 10 years experience in the region and about 3 now on this current farm that he's on. But never wet wind uh, wet winter, right? Yeah, that's correct. After, you know, now we're moving into the spring and summer and, um, you know, there, there's still effects of, uh, of that rain that, that are affecting them, especially on the coast where, you know, he's seeing the so-called June gloom kind of affecting him in a, in a much more greater way than it has in the past because the, the ocean temperature has remained pretty cool and the inland uh, temperatures continue to increase. So that's really pulling that heavy fog and colder temperatures over him on the coast for extended times throughout the day, you know, where that would burn off uh, in the previous years, you know, by 11, 12 o'clock. He's seeing that now going into the afternoon, which is blocking the sunlight 
and keeping the temperatures on his farm much cooler. Mm -hmm. Which is not good. You want some, I mean, for tomatoes, they'd like some heat, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, it, it really pushed him back. He, he's about uh, two months Uh, two months behind where he thinks he should be at this point. It's just interesting to hear these intricacies when you look at non-organic production where you have a field, it's commercially drained, um, you use it as prepping ground for your vegetables, there's not much in the soil, you add nitrogen, phosphorus and potassium to the crop and it grows and that's it, end of story. To hear now after 10 years or at this new plot after three years to still basically deal week by week with um, the overarching environment around your farm and on your farm, which area drains, which area freezes, ocean is cooler, so more fog is in, less sunlight. Wow, it is, it is a living organism in that sense, right? Everything, the soil microbes are affected by the temperature that affects the plant growth. So you are constantly navigating all these elements of nature that are, that are constantly changing week after week, day after day. Thank you. Thank you for that update and for being a voice for, for that whole segment of the organic industry, the new young farmer, Elwood Canyon Farm, young people who have decided to make organic agriculture their livelihood. And if you know them and if you can support your local organic farmer, young or old, uh, but specifically people who are still figuring it out and making that their career and their life, if you can support them even better as Earl's Organic does. Thank you so much, Anthony, for that update and for being that voice and that ear and for relating that to us and our listeners. Really beautiful to have that perspective. Absolutely. My pleasure. And we have you back very soon, I hope. Yeah, I uh, can't wait. Maybe uh, sometime in the fall when uh, the tomatoes are... Oh, are we will. Yes, just yeah. a few months away. Okay, thanks so much, Great. Anthony. Talk, Thank talk you. soon. Bye-bye. Bye. And that's an hour of an organic conversation. Organic and non-organic wine, a comparison from land to bottle, and the update from the San Francisco Produce Doc, the consumer segment of what you will find in the natural food stores or your grocer in the next few weeks and what's a deal and what is not, what to look out for and what to do with it, what's in season. I'm Helge Helberg. This is an organic conversation. Thank you so much for listening and we'll be back with another episode next week. Have a great week. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you also to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. And Utterly, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Every garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, 
adelie.co. Also, Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? Anyone can buy directly from Earl's Organic at wholesale prices. The website is earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. Family owned and operated since 1980. Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County award-winning wines. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. Lastly, thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at An Organic Conversation and on Twitter at Talk Organic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then. Thank you.